Welcome to The Collective Tap, conversations about water. I'm your host, Taylor Bennett. This is our last episode exploring the world of water and its many users in Indiana. Earlier this season, our field hosts, Taz Walters and Devin Damney, brought you conversations about community, wildlife, and recreation. Today, we will close things out with a conversation that may challenge how we think about our relationship with our waters. First, let's meet Taz and Devin. Hi, I'm Taz Walters, one of the Collective TAP's non-water expert hosts. Just like you, I have lots of questions about our water. And I'm Devin Dabney. I'm also new to the world of water, but I'm here to help ask the questions you might want answered. In this episode, we hear from the community who used Indiana's waters before European colonization. While Native peoples derive many familiar benefits from these waters, their relationship to them was fundamentally different. And that difference continues to be at the heart of the Miami Nation as it exists today. We talk with George Ironstrack and Scott Shoemaker. George Ironstrack is a citizen of the Miami tribe of Oklahoma and the assistant director of the education office in the Miamia Center at Miami University. Scott Shoemaker is also a citizen of the Miami tribe of Oklahoma and a former curator of Native American art, history, and culture at the Ida George Museum. We discuss the way water is interwoven with the Miami people's origin, art, culture, and even their forced removal from their ancestral lands. We talk with George and Scott together in this final conversation on The Collective Tap. We hope you enjoy. My name is George Ironstrack. I'm a citizen of the Miami Tribe of Oklahoma, and I work as the assistant director at the Miami Center at Miami University. So I said hello, my relatives. Uh, my name is Scott Shoemaker, and I'm a citizen of the Miami Tribe of Oklahoma, and former curator at the Idle Drug Museum of Native Art and currently work in the field of philanthropy. And I live in Minnesota now, uh, Dakota home. Today, we really want to talk to you too about the indigenous person's relationship to water. Could you just give us a brief overview of the Miami Nation pre-contact versus today? Yeah, so I'll do my best to summarize it quickly. This will be the kind of 10,000-foot view, and I think um, can always provide places for folks to learn more if they want to want to get more details. So our, our people, we call ourselves Miamiake, which can be translated as meaning those who live downstream. So as you can guess, we're a, a river-centered or water-centered people throughout our history. And uh, the place that we now call Indiana is the, the heart of our historic homelands that today we call Miamiongi, or the place of the Miamia with the northern Wabash River being the core vein running through those heartlands. And we say we lived in that space from time immemorial until a period of uh, really massive disruptions, warfare and disease that came with European arrival. And, you know, clicking kind of the fast forward button there to get us through, you know, until the 1790s, 
um, where we begin to cede our homeland at, at treaties with the United States. And over the 50 years that follow, um, we cede most of the rest of our homelands, though not, though not all those lands, most of the rest, and are forced west of the Mississippi in terms of the tribal government is moved to what is today Kansas in a forced removal that occurs in 1846. This removal fragments the people. Um, around 150 Miamiake are allowed to remain living in the Wapashikisipiwe River Valley, the Wabash River Valley in Indiana, and the nation and over 300 people go to Kansas. After the Civil War, there's another forced removal to the northeast corner of Indian Territory, and the government moves again. Once again, people, some people stay behind in what is today Kansas. So today you have a tribal nation where our, our sovereign government and our trust lands are, are centered in northeast Oklahoma and former Indian Territory. Um, but we have citizens living in those three main population concentrations, Oklahoma, Kansas, and Indiana, as well as 46 other states. Um, the population of the nation today is 6,700, so a pretty small tribal nation in the when you compare us to nations like the more well-known big nations like the Cherokee Nation or or the Navajo Nation. The Miami people's origin story as a nation is very closely tied to water. Could you elaborate on that? So this story, it was recorded in the early 1900s from an elder named Wapanakekapwa, um, or Gabriel Godfroy was his name. And it was a story that was told to him when he was younger. And it's about where the Miamis first came from. And so they came from a place called Salkiweongi, uh, which can be translated as the coming out place, but it's it's more in reference to a confluence. And that's on the St. Joseph's River. So at a confluence along the St. Joseph's River, I think we're still kind of uncertain the exact location of that. Could be um, around Elkhart, where it's the confluence of the Elkhart River, potentially farther near the confluence with uh, Lake Michigan Benton Harbor, Michigan, but somewhere around that area. And so at first the, the Miamis came out of the water and they told each other to grab a hold of tree limbs and pulled themselves out. And then they made a, a town there, lived there for a while, then moved away and came back and then found another people that were there. And they spoke a similar language and they called them the old moccasin people. So nobody really knows what happened to them. And that, that was a story that was handed down to him from an elder named Katanga or Charlie. And he said that all the old Indian people believe that story. And a lot of our names um, are also associated with that place. So there's a lot of Miami people whose personal names are in direct reference to that place. So it's a sort of a central and integral part of our identity that, that we became Miami people through this transformation of lifting ourselves out of the river. And so that's, as George mentioned, that we're, we are very much a river people. And so at our very beginning is where that begins. And Scott, as an artist, how does that beginning and origin, that relationship to water, how is that, is it represented in your art? And if so, how? Oh, gosh. Uh, I guess water is, water is always a part of that. I mean, think of sort of our, the way our cosmology and the way we think about the world and our place within it is that there is the earth, the, um, oh gosh, help me out here. Same thing. <laughs> okay. uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, okay. Quit. <laughs> so our cosmology in terms of like earth and sky. So in the, in the sky realm, there are certain beings um, who are kind of in control of that. And then there's in the underwater realm, there's, there's other beings, spiritual beings that are part of that. So a lot of their, forms become abstracted into geometric shapes. And you see this in a lot of pre-contact materials like 
hide painting, porcupine quills, lots of other things. And once ribbons came in through the trade, which also is related to the waters, because that's where the goods came through. And these trade networks pre-existed European contacts. So there's always materials and ideas coming through those relationships. And so the ribbons were just a natural part that became incorporated into that. And that uh, Miami women in particular started using ribbon in ways that were similar to sort of that aesthetic tradition that they were using the other materials for. So a lot of those abstract patterns really integrate that idea of the, the earth and the sky within it. Speaking of European context, <laughs> um, how did the settler colonialism change the water landscape on the Miami people's lands? Yeah, dr- dramatically. Um, in a way that I think it's fair to say, even, you know, jumping back to Wapanak, Kapwer, Gabriel Godfroy, the landscape we live on today versus the landscape he lived on, you know, up until his death in you know, the early 20th century is probably un- would be unrecognizable to him, certainly unrecognizable to his parents and grandparents generations. You know, this part, this core heartland for us in central Indiana, but, you know, the rest of our homelands, which include part of Ohio, most of what is today Illinois, part of Wisconsin, small part of Michigan, that land was full of wetlands. And so a lot of times today people focus on, you know, riverine features and they think the waterways kind of flow like they've always flowed. And that's just simply not, not the case. So there's been a lot of channelization, changing of the way in which the rivers run to make them run more straight. And at least the belief would be leave their banks left off less often. And dramatic draining of wetlands, like the Great Black Swamp which basically from, you know, Fort Wayne to Toledo, Ohio was all one big giant swamp. But there are many smaller prominent wetlands and swamps throughout Indiana. And so the draining of those swamps uh, pumped a lot more water directly into the rivers and led to massive flooding um, in the 20th century. Um, And so you have this sort of cycle of problems that as Europeans uh, gain political control of our land or European Americans gain political control of our land, they begin to alter land, clear cutting forests, draining wetlands, channelizing streams, digging canals to try and create a more regularly flowing uh, bodies of water to move goods on, you know, at least until railroads supersede that mode of transportation. And that causes a lot of flooding. Um, so that, you know, this is still impactful for us today as Miami people. Then in the 60s, you have the U.S. government creating dam projects to dam major waterways ostensibly to to deal with flooding. So you have the dam on the Namachisinwisipiwe on the Mississinawa River, the dam on the Wapashikisipiwe at Rush Lake, and you have the dam on the Unzalamunisipiwe on the Salamone River. You know, of course, today, those bodies of water, those lakes are used really for entertainment, for fishing and for boating, but at least ostensibly they were created to control flooding, which was caused by settlement patterns and problems that settlement caused instead of dealing with the root cause, which was the dramatic changes in the landscape, which caused water to flow differently. Uh, they just kept putting sort of progressive band-aids. And for me, at least as a Miamia person, there's there's many spots that you know I can't take my kids to now on those rivers because they've been drowned by the lakes. And so it's impactful to us to this day because we can't interact with our homelands in the way that uh, Gabriel Godfrey's generation could. Yeah, just that deluge of historic and culturally significant places. It's just a part of the erasure of Miami presence and of our relationship to this place. You know, it's interesting, like in some of those areas, oh, they'll name like have some name related to Miami people, but nobody really 
the general public just doesn't even know sort of the devastation that, that created. You know, like several of our cemeteries also had to be relocated. Uh, one of my great aunts, she was out there with the Army Corps of Engineers, moved one of the cemeteries and relocated it to another spot. And then another cemetery was moved to where a lot of other sort of community cemeteries are moved to. And it just looks like a big parking lot. When you visit these other, you know, existing Miami cemeteries, they're just beautiful and they're on these hills and there's all these cedar trees and there's all these wonderful things about it. And it just removes all of those special things about those places. And so it's just, again, sort of like that continual erasure of us and our relationship to that waterscape, thinking about it, not in terms of a landscape, but it's the waterscape because it's the water that connects us across these vast stretches. So you think of in terms of like watersheds, you know, that we're all very much interconnected to all these places and how that destruction and colonization has just had such a significant impact upon not only Miami people, but then also thinking of our, you know, the plant and animal relatives who, who called those places home and that we depended upon when ethnologists were collecting information from Miami speakers in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. They collected a lot of things about plants and a large majority of those plants were wetland related plants and thinking of the abundance of that place and how it provided for us. And then once that's gone, what did we have to shift to? You know, what were the alternatives? Something that is striking me is we like to think as if the days of these devastations are over and gone, but they're still impacting us. And and we still have that legacy due to the erasure of this history. I mean, look at SB 389 that passed, people are still attacking wetlands and getting rid of them in Indiana. Yeah, one thing I also thinking about too, that the importance of corn for Miami people, you know, historically that our villages were in along the rivers and planting those fields where they would get, you know, sort of the periodic flooding and the replenishing of the the nutrients and everything because corn is such a, you know, it takes a lot of nutrients out of the soil. And so there is this, just this like, deep understanding of the cyclical nature of the rivers themselves and finding ways to, you know, to live with those, those different cycles. And then once that's gone, you know, we basically stopped growing our corn kind of around World War II. And that, you know, also kind of coincides with just all those massive ships as well. Can either or both of you talk a little bit more about how the Miami people view water? And to set that up a little bit, I think a lot of times... I don't know, the Western world tends to view that water strictly as a resource or something to be used or exploited or taken advantage of. Yeah, I think, you know, especially with the pipeline protests that occurred among, you know, our our Archean folk and other tribes out West, we saw a lot of the very strong language of water is life. And people at our own community began to ask, well, how would you, how would you say that in, in Miami in our language? And it, it created a really interesting, um, like internal philosophical question because uh, nipe, our word for water, isn't animate. It's not, it's not living. So you can't talk about it directly as though it is a living thing in our language. But you know, the the folks who do a lot of work with our language and the teachers of our language, they, you know, looked at phrases that got at the core idea that we see in our ancestors' behavior, recognizing that. Nippe is central to our lives. And so they, they coined the phrase nippe kehikitange, uh, or, you know, water is flowing with life. So recognizing that the flow of water 
carries living things and is essential to living things. Um, and so, as Nishima said, we live in a landscape that you could call a waterscape, where rivers are like the veins or the arteries moving through our, our homelands and our people. And that our names for those rivers, usually a representation of our ecological relationships with the land to plant and animal relatives, as, as Scott already said, as well as to other human beings. And so water was flowed with all these interconnections. So for an example, the Unzala Municipi with the book it's anglicized Salamone River is a reference to a plant. Um, the bloodroot plant, which grew in large quantities um, and still grows in that river valley to this day, or you know the rivers at you know, sort of our our largest capital city, Kikayonge, today Fort Wayne, Indiana, where we have the confluence of the Maumee. One of the rivers that flows into the Maumee in our language is Namewasipiwe, or the Sturgeon River, a reference to the habits of fish to go up that river, large sturgeon to go up that river to spawn every year. Fish that are for the most part aren't there anymore, but the name of the river for us is a memory of ecological behavior of the past. And the Maumee River itself, we call Tawawa Sipiwe, or the Odawa River, because it connected us to the Odawa people who lived to the east on the Maumee River. You know, rivers are in every way central to our life and our relationships to our homelands, to other people, and to the plants and animals that we share our spaces with. Yeah, and one other thing that came to mind too is, you know, just thinking of not just the surface water, but the subsurface water too. You know, how limestone is just such a, the main sort of like uh, rock, uh, sort of bedrock in our region, especially along those rivers and the importance of springs, freshwater springs. So one of our words, like our word for spring is takingami, which kind of means like cold water. So kame is another word that you can use for like the spring, or it's also for lakes. So like kichikami, uh, which is our word for Lake Michigan. But the importance of those springs along there and having all that fresh water. And that was, I know that there's stories about that's a reason why certain villages were located in certain areas was because of those, those natural um, cold water springs. Yeah. Just to, to throw in another detail, I think for the imagination of, of a listener who's, who lives in Indiana, coming back to Wapasena to limestone from from Scott's to, you know, important connection to subsurface water and springs, the Wabash River, Wapashikisipi in our language, references the sparkling bed of that river, because before sedimentation, huge parts of that river had a limestone bed. And so when the sun would shine through the water, it would reach the bottom and reflect off of this white limestone bed back up. And that's a site that I've never seen on the Wabash. I've seen it in a few other places as some practices, farming practices have improved and sedimentation has decreased. There are some spots in the Namacha Sinwe and the Mississippi River where you can see that. But to imagine that much larger river with this white bed sparkling in the sun, um, that's what used to be and an example of how the ongoing process of settler colonialism has altered the landscape in ways that um, in some cases are not repairable. You know, we've talked a lot about how waterways are such an important connection, but it sounds like that's also a little bit fraught because part of that connection was also connection to colonialism and, and settlers. And also, you know, some of the history of, of removing the Miami people from this area using those waterways. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, we just finished a year of commemorating the 175th anniversary of our forced removal 
from Indiana to Kansas and the fragmentation of our people. You know, I think the community in no way wants to forget these things, right? The stories have to be told so that we can remember um, what our ancestors went through so that we could be here today. You know, we have to keep telling these stories to show our respect for them and so we can continue to remember how we came to be, how we are today as a people. And as Scott and I have both, you know, said in multiple different ways, those stories sit in places. And so, you know, people do go visit, for instance, here in Ohio, there's an extant portion of the Miami Erie Canal where the, the canal boats travel during removal. And it's it's managed by um, an Ohio History Connection site organization. And that quarter mile section of the canal still has a canal boat running on it. And so people visit that site and it is it is painful, but it's important to go and and pay respects to the places where these stories stories sit. In other parts of the landscape, the canals are filled in. And I tend to think of those as kind of like scars in the landscape. It's another kind of attempt at healing because, you know, the canals are dug sort of to suck water out of these springs and out of the rivers and run them in a more consistent fashion for, you know, entrepreneurial purposes for business. Um, so it's it's good that, you know, the land is healing, but at the same time, it sort of obscures the history of those sites for us. It's mixed, right, when we go looking for places in our landscape to connect to these stories. But we certainly, um, as a people, want to continue to connect the, you know, future generations of these stories so they understand what their ancestors went through. You hinted a little bit to this in your answer just now, but what are some ways that you as a people keep your approach to the natural world alive in this post-colonial America? Well, I think especially with our language revitalization that is now, gosh, it's almost, is it three decades now that we've been revitalizing our language? And so there's so much knowledge embedded within that, that has just been amazing to see the transformation and how, because the, the language really embodies our worldview. And when you think about that, you know, it's, it's all about relationship. It's all about kinship and how we talk about and think about um, our relationship to other people, to plant and animal world and everything else. You know, we do a lot of, gosh, so many different projects and so many different activities. Um, we do a lot of kids camps, which is one of my, my favorite things. George is able to participate in those a little bit more than I am these days, but one of the things, I guess, just kind of going back to like my grandfather, when he was younger, one of the things that he loved the most was going out into the landscape with some of the elders and they would, you know, teach him about history of different places or different plants and those sorts of things. And so some of that knowledge was what he passed on to me. And that's what that responsibility that I have as well. And also that new knowledge that I've gained through the language of realization and thinking of, gosh, we have so many like starting to make lacrosse sticks because we've started playing lacrosse as well. And it takes a special type of stick. And so understanding what wood species and how to work with the wood and, and all of those different things, there's all these in art and there's just so many things. It just, it's just so interconnected, I think. And it's really a part of, I think, everything that we really do. Yeah. I would just, I would just add that, you know, sort of this mistaken stereotype notion that, Native people, Indigenous people didn't have a 
like a concept of land ownership prior to contact with Europeans, which is a false one. Um, it was certainly, though, a different kind of understanding of land ownership. And so what's been an important change, I think, for Miamia people in the very near the very end of the 20th century and into the 21st century is the return of land to the community through uh, purchasing land back so that we control it collectively. Or actually, there's there's places in Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, that folks are giving us land back. And having control of land matters, right? Now, we don't think of it as a resource or a possession to buy and sell, but rather, once we control it, as a community, we can exert collective influence over that land, seek to restore ecological relationships, restore ecological health to the land. And all these practices that Scott mentioned that elders taught members of our community, life can be breathed back into them at a much bigger level. Um, so that, you know, these small strands of knowledge that survived in individual families can be brought together into land that we now control collectively as a people. And do things like educate the next generation through youth camps about how do our stories sit in these places? How do our practices actually help the land, you know, the landscape, the waterscape uh, return to as close to a level of health that existed prior to contact with Europeans? Recognize settler colonialism has irrevocably altered certain parts of the landscape and not, that, those won't come back, at least not the way they were. But there's some parts of those relationships that can be restored to some new kind of equilibrium that approximates what was here before. You know, this is a, a human-shaped environment before contact with Europeans. Um, the use of fire, the management of forests, the management of prairies, humans affected all of that. You know, I think that obviously also impacts the the waterways and the, the waterscape, as, as Scott says. Yeah, and I might just add to that. I think that's a really good point. You know, that idea of like wilderness, you know, that somehow like land and water is like devoid of people. And that means it's pristine and that somehow native people didn't do anything. We didn't have any impact upon our relationship with those places and so thinking about you know it's interesting what european contact when they first came into the to this land it was very much shaped by us it wasn't this like virgin wilderness as they like to think about it but something very much you know carefully shaped by us over multiple generations and i think too that's thinking of you know, not just in terms of control, uh, us having, being able to have control, taking back control of space, but then also having access to those spaces that we can't, you know, thinking of like state parks, national parks, and having a say in what happens there. You know, I think it's important for those entities to be consulting with tribal nations because we have this knowledge and that we can really, you know, help to shape what those can be in the future. And so I think that, you know, for a long time with some of our cultural practices that those, those went to a state of dormancy because we didn't have the access to those places. You know, we stopped say like making basketry because we relied upon black ash trees for that and black ash trees grow in wetlands. And so when you completely destroy all the wetlands, there's no black ash trees to really harvest. And so all these other things that are a part of that, that are just kind of going back to our language revitalization is less about cultural revitalization and that reconnecting of relationships and that there's a responsibility that settler colonial entities like Department of Natural Resources or National Park System, you know, that they have towards indigenous peoples because they all benefit from our dispossession. You've talked a lot about the river names and given some of the 
translations. Are there specific naming conventions for how the rivers were named in your language? Well, I think like George had mentioned, there's some certain physical characteristics that are unique to some of those rivers. So like the word Nemachisin, where it means like uh, has to do with slanting or the Unzalamunis, related to the bloodroot plant there. Or there's specific places along those rivers that talk about um, physical features. So like the word for the city of Peru is Icapisanome, which means a straight place. And there's a stretch in basically downtown Peru where the Wabash River is completely straight. And so there's all these different, like the word for Tipicanoe rivers, Ketepequan um, Sipiwes. It's in reference to uh, the white drum or buffalo fish. Um, so maybe there's, you know, there was a abundance of those type of fish in that river. Um, some of those reasons we're not quite clear on, but some of those, like he'd mentioned the Tawawa CP with the, or which is the Mami in English, but that was what the river name was from the Odawa people. So as he mentioned, we're, we were the downstream people. So as in their language, the Mami Zibe and ours is the Tawawa CP our word for the Ohio River, well, the Ohio River from our perspective begins where it meets the Wabash River. So the Wabash River continues on to the Mississippi River. So from our perspective, the Ohio River is only from that stretch upwards. And our word for that is the Kanzizipe. And that's in reference to the Kanza people and their related peoples, the Osage, the Ponca, the Omaha, and I'm leaving. Oh, Quapaw. Um, and they have very old stories that that's part of their, that's where they came from. So that reference to that river stretches back millennia from when they lived in that place and that we had a relationship to them through that river. And so, yeah, I guess I don't, <laughs> there's no, you know, I think there's a certain things that, you know, maybe there's also, I don't know if there's reference to like, there's, there could be multiple names for different rivers as well. Uh, and just sort of one, you know, kind of becomes the predominant one used. What are some ways that our listeners can continue to learn and evolve their relationship with water, with our land, and support the work that you are doing? I want to be I want to be careful here because it's not within sort of my realm of expertise to talk about how the general public can learn about, you know, water and land. I think there are a lot of really good organizations in Indiana and in the Midwest that do this kind of work. You know, I don't, I don't want to, you know, stake a claim to their territory, but in terms of understanding Miamia people and other, other indigenous people's uh, views of the land where, where you might live today, I think seeking out what nations have ties to those lands and actually interacting with usually the educational resources produced by that tribal nation. So, you know, if you're in North Central Indiana, chances are you're on at least one of the tribes with central ties to that land is the Miami Tribe of Oklahoma. And you can find, you know, Googling and starting with the tribal national website. Um, so, you know, you're on, you know, their website and you can usually find the natural resources department or the environmental um, services department. And you can find educational links and almost universally any tribe, you know, where they're going to begin with education is is landscape and waterscape. And so it's through, you know, turning to tribes as experts on our own histories and on our own ecologies that you could begin to learn more about our relationships um, with the land. So for the, for the Miami community, there's also the Miami Center, which is an initiative of the Miami Tribe of Oklahoma. So we 
what all the work we do is on their behalf and any resources you'd find on Miami Center affiliated web pages would um, you know, be those vetted by the Miami tribe and approved for public distribution. I find I've given a lot of public talks in Indiana, in the Wabash River Valley, especially. And I find people are fascinated by place names. It's a really good entry point because, you know, there's so many place names in Indiana that are either translations of our words or Potawatomi words for the places or are anglicizations of those words. Um, and so the Wabash River Valley, almost all the rivers are either directly taken from our language or anglicizations of our, of our language. And in some cases, there's like a one-to-one match with the Potawatomi too. So there's, you know, an overlap there. And so I, you know, just love to point out our, the Miami Travel Oklahoma's online dictionary, um, which again, you can find either through the Miami Travel Oklahoma's homepage or the Miami Center. And you can look up most of the rivers in Indiana and you can see how to pronounce them in our language. And that I think embeds a lot of interesting knowledge, as you've already pointed out, about our history and our present day connections to Indiana in a way that, you know, every time you, you know, drive over the the Wapashik ACP where you could look it up on your phone and and hear it pronounced, right? It's a small little thing, but I think those having those important touchstones that say, you know, these names are Miamia names or Potawatomi names, and they tell you whose land this is to this day, no matter who claims title to it, is an important act of intellectual sovereignty. And it's a way in which, you know, I find we can kind of reach into people's lives a little moments um, in an impactful way. The value of water goes far beyond what comes out of our tap, what we use to grow our food, or what gets consumed for electricity. Water is often at the center of what it means to be part of a community, and it is the core of our individual health and the health of our society. We thank you for being part of this podcast community and joining us for these conversations about water. We hope that they have inspired a deeper connection to this most precious asset. And with that, we bring a close to the collective tap. This has been a project of the White River Alliance, a 501c3 organization located in Indianapolis, Indiana. We are an alliance of diverse interests and organizations that work together to steward the river and its watershed. It is made possible with generous funding from the Nina Mason Pulliam Charitable Trust. If you want to learn more, visit us at thecollectivetap.com or at thewhiteriveralliance.org. Produced in partnership with Absorb.